the crowd was sitting in efficacy short term and mid term was within the range of the first generation of biologics such as etanercept. And it actually improved from week 16 to week 24. And at one year, BASI 75 for ducramacitinib was similar to use tekinumab and adalimumab, but it was still in inferior to the newer classes, the interleukin-17 inhibitors and interleukin-23 inhibitors. Ducramacitinib was superior to metatrexate and apremilast at all time points. So really, it was this information where it was interesting to see that PASI-75 for Ducravacity was really, at one year, was in the range of the Eustekinumab and Dadalimumab. And this is, again, oral agent that's convenient, that's safe. So this may really become a game changer in our systemic management of the moderate to severe disease. Hi, my name is Irina Turchin. Hi, this is Dr. Chiho Hong, and you are listening to the Skin and Joints Podcast. Welcome back to It Takes Two to Tick Two. All right, let's pick up from part one of our conversation with Dr. Hong and Dr. Turchin. Take it away, Taraj. Speaking of clinical trials, since the release of the pivotal so Tick Two trials, there's been further analysis to examine a more detailed view on the new therapies into the standard of care. And this data was presented at the Fall Clinical Dermatology Conference in Las Vegas. One analysis explores the clinical efficacy associated with ducravacitinib versus other selective active biologic and non-biologic treatments in patients with moderate to severe psoriasis. Could you tell our listeners of what this sought to demonstrate? So this was a network meta-analysis that was presented at the full clinical and basically it compared the efficacy of ducravacitinib to other systemic and biologic therapies. And then looked at the short term, so 10 to 16 weeks, midterm, weeks 24 to 28, and long term, so 44 to 60 weeks. And they focused on the past 75. And what they found is that the cramacitinib efficacy short term and midterm was within the range of the first generation of biologics, such as etanercept. And it actually improved from week 16 to week 24. And at one year, BASI-75 for ducravacitinib was similar to use tekinumab and adalimumab, but it was still in inferior to the newer classes, the interleukin-17 inhibitors and interleukin-23 inhibitors. Ducravacitinib was superior to metatrexate and apremilast at all time points. So really, it was this information where it was interesting to see that PASI-75 for ducravacitinib was really, at one year, was in the range of the use tekinumab and adalimumab. And this is, again, oral agent that's convenient, that's safe. So this may really become a game changer in our systemic management of the moderate to severe disease. Thanks for sharing that. It's quite amazing as an oral agent to have a PASI-75 level of efficacy. It's a new benchmark and uh, you're you know, competing with molecules like adalimumab or ustekinumab, biologics that are being used for patients but are injectable. This really is a treatment paradigm shift. Yeah, no, I think that the most important thing as that part about PASI 75 rates at a year that are basically similar to what we were using 10, 12 years ago in terms of biologics, right? You know, we have an oral tablet that's pretty much on par to what the original Humira gave us. And back then we thought that was like a remarkable, that was already a, that was already a quantum leap from where we were in the early 2000s, to have this now with an oral agent, you know, was basically unthinkable like 20 years ago when I started practice. Mm, looking back, it is kind of crazy to think about it in that way. 
So data shared at the fall clinical dermatology meeting in Las Vegas. And by the way, we missed the memo on that uh, conference. We were not there, unfortunately, but quality of life is greatly impacted with these patients and is obviously a really important measure when looking at the clinical status of the patient. A recent post-hoc analysis looked at evaluating the correlation between clinical and patient report outcome measures and pooled data from the pivotal trials, Fuetic PSO1 and PSO2. Could you tell our listeners what did this reveal? And from a patient's lens, what does this all mean with skin clearance and the correlation or relationship with quality of life? Well, anytime we have a treatment that has a high rate of clinical response, it's usually reflected with significant improvements in patient report outcomes. So I think that generally is true, particularly for psoriasis. When the drug works very well, you'll see significant improvements in PROs. And we see that certainly in the Decrapacitin of phase three project, you know, the drug works well and that you get this corresponding improvement in PROs. Some specific things that are related to psoriasis that are of relevance, itch, which is a particularly bothersome symptom for many patients. You know, four out of five patients have quite meaningful itch reduction if they achieve PASI 75, which makes sense. Obviously, if your psoriasis improves, the inflammation gets better and the paritis improves. But I don't think it's unexpected to see that a drug that works well provides good improvements in PROs. That's a very key point you mentioned. Whatever it is, a validated tool like a DLQI, you would expect that correlation, uh, regardless of the therapy, as long as it shows more skin clearance, the better the PROs or patient report outcomes. It's important to look at the data in that lens. Oh, I think I hear the phone ringing. All right, so this cues the Ask the Expert segment. This is where we pose your burning questions to our experts. So we've pulled our mailing list and uh, we had more questions than we have time to ask for on air. We can probably just create a separate podcast on the questions alone, but uh, we thought these two questions specifically were most relevant and applicable for using in practice tomorrow. Our first question comes from Kim in Toronto. She's asking, what are your thoughts about starting a patient on a Premalast and then assessing response before moving on to a molecule like Ducravacitinib? And she hinted that with Premalast now being genericized, would this play a role in terms of the selection of the next step up therapy? What are your thoughts with regards to this? I kind of like to go to the more effective agent first. And when we look at the so one and two trials, we know that the passive improvement with Ducravacitinib versus Premalast was way superior. So it was almost double at week 24. So... You know, to me, uh, right from the bat, I'm thinking, well, I'd like to reach out to the more effective treatment if I can, if there's access. There was also a poster at the Winter Clinical where they looked at the cumulative clinical benefit of initiating Ducravacitinib from baseline compared to the Apremolized from baseline. And they found that patients who initiated on Ducravacitinib from baseline versus switched actually had more time in therapeutic response over the year compared to the ones who were started on a Premila. In my mind, patient is always the focus. So I think in my clinical practice, all equal, if I have access, I would reach out to Ducravacitinib. We also know that with Ducravacitinib, there's adverse event profile that's different from a Premila. So even from that point of view, we know that nausea and, and diarrhea, the GI side effects that some patients will see with Aprimilas, it wasn't seen for Ducravacitin in patients. So this is another point for me to consider. And for me personally, I would tend to pick Ducravacitin if I can. More effective, 
better tolerability profile. Interesting. So you're saying that the efficacy and tolerability, that's more important than just looking at cost. And you talked about having ducrevacitinib as a first-line therapy, then having this as, as kind of a second-line therapy after trying something like a premolas, the data is definitely skewed towards having ducrevacitinib as first-line. Well, you know, it's always nice to have more treatment options. So I don't think that um, Premolas will necessarily go away. Any less utilization of Premolas when there's more highly effective oral options available that can be used long term. I think when you look at the best answer to this question is like, you know, pharmacoeconomic modeling uh, doesn't just look at cost, it looks at cost for an outcome measure. So in psoriasis, you would say, like, okay, well, what's my outcome measure that I want to look at? I want to look at PASI 75. So how much does it cost to get a patient to PASI 75? in a population. That's really what you're looking at. So what's your cost per PASI 75? So then it comes down to what's the cost of the drug? So what's a year of a Tremblast cost versus what a year of Ducramacitinib costs? And, and you factor those costs in to get a population of patients that have these 75. That's sort of how you compare these things. So really, it depends on what the generic Tremblast cost is. My understanding currently is that it's only slightly less than the originator Otesla molecule. So there's only a small cost savings. Now, there may be behind the scenes pricing that makes the true price opaque to us, but based on the list price that are currently available for generic Apremolas, cost reduction based on the fact that it's generic is not that large a discount. Yeah, I think you're right about that. It's not significant. Uh, so you make a good point about the totality of the pharmacoeconomic modeling and that it's more than just the price alone. It's also looking and factoring in things like outcomes, which are very important, and uh, things like patient outcomes, which are very, very important in this whole conversation. All right. Uh, so let's move on to our second Ask the Expert question. Yeah. So we know that adherence is vital. Do you foresee adherence as a concern for ducravacitinib compared to injectable biologics? And also, if patients skip or miss a few doses, is it difficult to go back to baseline? Do patients tend to flare quickly if they miss a couple of doses? Yeah, the interesting thing with Ducrovacitinib was that in the part of the study where patients were taken off active drug, the relapse rate was not super rapid, which was probably... To, at least to me, I didn't necessarily anticipate that. My experience with JAK inhibitors for other conditions are that they work very quickly. And when you don't take them, they stop working also very quickly, which ensures adherence, <laughs> but can be a bit of a problem for clinical management. I was surprised to see, and in my own experience, patients that stopped to cravacitinib did not necessarily rebound that quickly. So my anticipation is if a patient misses a few doses here or there, it probably actually will make that big a deal. Um, they miss many doses over days to weeks, then they would have a relapse. But the data suggests that you can basically recapture those patients when they restart. And because it's a small molecule, you don't develop things like immunogenicity. So adherence to oral medications is certainly different than adherence to an injectable drug. When you have a drug that's injected every 12 weeks, you can basically get a nurse to track down the patient to give it to the patient, which makes adherence very, very high. But in clinical practice, patients are prescribed oral tablets all the time. That recapture data, that's interesting when you look at it comparing ticks to jacks. Not that you'd encourage a patient to skip a few doses there, but 
patients for any chronic disease, I think it's easy to forget taking a pill once or twice a day for multiple reasons. Not intentionally. It's good to hear that there's some flexibility there. And you're right. It's going to be, I think, something that's a real world problem that we thought would be very relevant for clinicians to be able to, to know how to handle. As we move on here, looking at special sites for psoriasis, this conversation really wouldn't be complete, we thought, unless we looked at also scalp, nail, and palmoplantar psoriasis. And there's a subgroup analysis conducted looking at pooled data from the pivotal trials. Again, what did ducravacitinib demonstrate in patients with the treatment of these special sites of psoriasis? How did it perform? We generally expect that if the drug works well, it tends to work for the special sites as well. And like the data is somewhat reflective of this. So there was sub-analysis of the PSO1 and 2 trials. And basically when they looked at the scalp data, it showed that ducravacinib was definitely superior to placebo. When they looked at week 16, similarly, you know, fingernail, PGA01 was also superior to, to placebo. And it actually improved as we would expect it would improved over time from week 16. I believe it was about 20% and it improved to just over 50% to week 52. Palmoplantar disease tends to be particularly difficult to treat. And this probably is not so much reflective just of palmoplantar psoriasis. It was a subtype of the population where they had moderate to severe psoriasis with palmoplantar involvement. But again, here, about half of the patients had achieved PGA-01, so clear, almost clear palms and soles at week 16 and just over 50% at week 24. So this is all very encouraging and reassuring and again points out to the efficacy of the drug. Yeah, I agree with what Irina said. I think it's the caveat for this is that this is a sub-analysis and not all patients had scalp or fingernail or uh, pommel planters. So the numbers in each one of these groups is smaller than in the total trial population. It would be interesting um, for subsequent studies to be done looking specifically at these special site disease measures as primary outcome measures. So a scalp study, a pommel planter study, you know, Shoulder psoriasis study. Those would be, I think, very interesting outcomes for us. So, you're suggesting a deep dive on each special site and really kind of having the study powered with enough of a sample size to show a, a meaningful difference. Yeah. So, we went through a lot of clinical trial data today. It seems like Ducravacitinib, its efficacy is just as good as first generation biologics. It has great patient reported outcomes. It seems to work well in special sites for psoriasis. So with all of that in mind, what are your thoughts about the overall place of ducravacitinib in the treatment of moderate to severe psoriasis? Is it going to change the treatment landscape of psoriasis? I think having more treatment options for patients is always a good thing. I think having more treatment options that are employing different and unique mechanisms of action that we're not currently exploiting, which is what we have here. So we have a TIC2 inhibitor and we don't currently have a TIC2 inhibitor that we're utilizing. And now you've got methotrexate or retinoid, you've got a cyclospor as a T-cell inhibitor, you've got a TIC2 inhibitor, you've got a PDE4 inhibitor, and you've got a number of biologics that act at different points in the, in the psoriasis pathogenesis pathway. So it's nice to have a, a range of options to offer patients. Like I made in one of my earlier comments, 
lot of it has to do with access. None of this is relevant if the patient can never get the medication covered by insurance. So obviously access and reimbursement will still play a role, but assuming that this product is um, kind of like available reasonably widely by a different treatment schema, there will certainly be patients where this will be the preferred option or at least the preferred first option for them. So this is uh, going to be a paradigm shift. It looks like the patients have more options that are essentially first line and that they can move up. Access is going to be a key conversation point as we see therapy get in the hands of clinicians over the next few months. It'll definitely be something to keep watching for across the country to see how that plays out, how different provinces approach ducravacitinib as a new tick to oral therapy for our patients with psoriasis. Before we finish up the conversation on data, we have to round it out and ask you a little bit about adverse effects of ducravacitinib. So we know it's highly selective for the tick pathway. However, that being said, there are some data that were, again, recently presented looking specifically at its effect on liver enzymes and lipid levels. Any thoughts, any concerns about that? Is that a deal breaker for your colleagues or for healthcare providers, or can these be easily managed? Yeah, my, my understanding of this issue is that only a very small number of patients actually had alterations in liver enzymes, including AST and AL, ALT elevation. So I don't think that there were any shifts to like grade four problems, and most of them were just to grade three. So just kind of like elevations in liver enzymes, but not with like severe liver failure or anything. And these were mostly transient. They went back down. And a lot of these cases, I think, were in people that had underlying liver disease. Again, the most common liver disease we see in psoriasis is fatty liver disease. So many of our patients are overweight and they have metabolic disease. So a lot of them have baseline fatty liver disease. I don't think as investigators, we felt that there were cases of drug-induced liver injury. So most of these things were transient and may have other coexisting factors play here. You know, at the end of the day, we prescribe lots of medications that require monitoring. I still think probably the most commonly utilized treatment for psoriasis is probably still methotrexate. We're very aware that methotrexate is hepatotoxic. We have a big monitoring protocol for methotrexate for patients with psoriasis or treated with methotrexate. So I don't perceive that having to monitor liver enzymes even temporarily is a big barrier for dermatologists. We're used to doing this because we prescribe lots of methotrexate generally. Yeah, I completely agree where this is the population was uh, many of them will have underlying liver problems to some extent. Uh, so it's not completely unexpected to maybe perhaps see some transient changes from time to time. In my mind, I'm not particularly concerned about this. I think this brings up a really good point when it comes to monitoring. Initiating ducravacitinib, are there screening blood works that you would order? prior to initiating ducravacitinib, would you do a CBC, liver enzymes, screening for viral hepatitis, TB, like you would do in other DMARDs and biologics? I think given the inhibition of the androgen 23 so we're familiar with the concept, I probably would do something along the lines of these very straightforward, simple pre-biologic workups. We'll, you know, ask for the TB, Hep B, Hep C if it wasn't done already, just to have a baseline. And uh, liver enzymes, CBC, I think it will be perhaps patient-dependent. Most of these patients would have had a screening blood work already. So I haven't made my mind yet how I, you know, like I generally am not really particularly concerned to do regular monitoring. I think with any oral agent I made from the start may do some screening and maybe repeat it. Maybe 
maybe three months later, maybe even not. So, you know, I have to go through the product monograph in a bit more detail and see what their recommendations are. But I think in my mind, I'm not particularly focused on monitoring for this agent. And, you know, when patients are being considered for systemic therapy for management of psoriasis, many of the agents that we use are going to require some type of monitoring. So having these done at baseline is, is probably good clinical practice in case you need to move back and forth between one treatment and another. So particularly for patients that are coming from, uh, say, older systemics, we would probably have most of the stuff already done because this will always be done for methotrexate cyclospora. And people are coming from that path that uh, you probably would have had all this documented already. Thank you for the great practical question and uh, good answers uh, as well from our experts. Well, we really appreciate your time. Thank you so much for being on the Skin and Joints podcast. This is going to be very valuable information, I think, for everyone listening in. And we may have to have you guys back for a part two once we have some more real world data on this oral therapy and see how some of your predictions compare maybe six months to a year from now. Again, we appreciate your time. Thanks so much. Thank you. Thank you. Thanks for having me. Have a good one. You guys forgot to mention, as a reminder, we kind of have to say this, the opinions expressed on the Skin and Joints podcast are for educational purposes only and do not constitute nor replace professional medical advice, diagnosis, or treatment. Please consult with your healthcare provider if you have any concerns or questions about your health. Thank you to BMS for supporting today's episode with an independent medical educational grant. Let's chat soon.